I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. And here's our mystery object. It looks a little bit like a tent. And it's designed like that as really as a consequence of the special orbit that we're putting it into. The unusual-looking Cryosat-2, a European satellite designed to measure polar ice. It's due for launch later this month, and we'll hear from the UK scientist who conceived the mission. In other news, we feature stories of volcanic vents and bling for birds. This week's podcast comes from one of the world's oldest experimental farms, Rothamsted Research in Hertfordshire. For 160 years, scientists here have developed crops, studied pests and monitored the impact of farming. Well, not many crops around in the middle of winter, apart from those in the warm greenhouses behind me. But in what's fast becoming a tradition for this podcast, I'm outside in the cold. And with me is ecologist David Bowen, who's investigating the impact on the environment of growing energy crops. And that's what you can hear behind us, energy crops being harvested. Now, these are, are willow crops we're looking at at the moment. What, what, what is an energy crop, David? An energy crop is a crop grown specifically for the wood or biomass it grows. And, and it's then cut chipped and used to power power stations to make electricity or other forms of energy. Now these willow trees behind me, very spindly, quite tall, taller, taller than me, taller than a, a sort of av- your average human. How long have these been here for? These were actually planted about two and a half years ago. The tallness is one of the things that people are particularly interested in with energy crops. Their height typically is about three metres at full growth. They reach that late in the year and they're cut probably every two to three years, at about three metres high. Now, these are willow, but you could also have grasses as as your energy crop. There are two basic types of biomass crop that are being promoted in this country at the moment. One is willow, as you say. It's short-rotation coppice willow. It's grown on a three-year cycle. There is another crop, miscanthus grass. It's a non-native. It's actually originally from Southeast Asia. It's rather similar to sugarcane in many ways, in the way that it looks. Again, it's grown in large fields and reaches about three metres in height. So, wow, three metres high grass. Yeah, and, and that's some of the problems that people do have with it. It's this, this very large crop that grows in, 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 in large fields across the country, and people are asking questions you know, about it, the way it looks and uh, whether we should grow it in this country. Now, you mentioned the appearance. What are the other concerns about these crops? Well, these crops basically represent a major change on what we would ordinarily be doing in these fields. Typically, they would either be growing grass for cattle or, or maybe arable crops such as wheat for bread or, or again, for animal feed. They represent a, a change. They change potentially the biodiversity that's in the field. They change the water usage in the area. Things like that. Those are the concerns that people have. And what about the, the biodiversity? Because they are like a crop. Well, they are a crop. They're a monoculture. Mm-hmm. Well, willow, when it grows naturally in this country, is actually one of our most biodiverse plants. But when you grow it in thick stands like it does here, there are concerns that much of the biodiversity that would typically be associated with it in in the natural situation will be lost. It will also displace biodiversity that would ordinarily be there in the grassland or in the arable situation, and it's those things that we're measuring. With miscanthus, many of those questions are also being answered but one of the extra levels of interest with miscanthus is that it's a non-native crop it doesn't grow normally in this country it's actually a southeast asian plant and so it doesn't have the biodiversity that a native plant would ordinarily have growing on it 
Now, we've got the experimental crop here, and this is an experimental farm. How far off are you answering these questions before we start seeing these things grown commercially? Well, the thing about these crops are is that grown commercially, you're talking about people actually making a commitment of about 20 years to grow them. I mean, it's a considerable amount of time. Now, we can't wait 20 years for all the results to come in if we're going to tackle the problems of energy security, climate change, carbon footprints, all those questions that really biomass crops are, are one element of trying to answer. So what we're doing is, is, is relatively short-term type experiments, also experiments using crops that were planted some years ago, typically eight or ten years ago, to actually try and measure how biodiversity changes in these crops and might continue to change over the 20-year life cycle of the crop. And we are seeing some changes. But what we're also seeing is that, that again, some of the crops that we might actually replace these crops with, so for example, if we're going to put these biomass crops in place of, 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 of cereals or typical arable crops, we are actually seeing some positive changes there. It's not all bad or anything like that. I suppose there's a balance to be struck here, isn't there, between the environmental benefits of growing these crops and any potential downside for the environment of growing these crops? The balance is the really important thing. As soon as man does anything, as soon as we grow a crop, we change things. We change things from the natural situation to a cropping situation. What we're trying to do with these biomass crops is to get the biomass benefits so that we can produce large amounts of energy, but also minimise or manage for the biodiversity losses. In other words, we, what we don't want to do is lose biodiversity or damage the environment whilst we grow these things. So we're asking questions like, where do we site these fields? Do we put them in certain places that, rather than other places because that would be better for the environment? How large should the fields be? How many within a particular area? And how should we manage around those fields? For example, we can put margins around the fields to actually introduce more biodiversity, how big those margins should be. So it's questions like that that we're asking. So that we actually get the appropriate design of these fields to minimise the environmental impact and hopefully actually get some environmental benefit. Well David Bowen thank you. Stay with us though because I want to ask you about comics. This is the Planet Earth podcast featuring science funded by the Natural Environment Research Council and on the 25th of February a European satellite is due to be launched designed to measure the thickness of ice at the Earth's poles. Everyone's hoping it'll be second time lucky for Cryosat 2. The first mission was lost after a rocket failure. Sue Nelson has been talking to the UK scientist leading the project and has this report. It's an important mission because it's going to give us completely new information about how the changes that have been occurring in the Arctic are going to affect not simply the Arctic but also lower latitudes and in particular the ones we live in. Professor Duncan Wingham from University College London and the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling is the principal investigator of Cryosat 2. The mission, together with its UK-led science team, will help determine the ice cover at the poles of our planet, particularly at the Arctic, with unprecedented accuracy. Well, what's unique about it is its payload, is, is the radar. It's a new kind of radar, it's not been flown before, designed to have a very small spot on the Earth so that we can distinguish between ice in the Arctic and the narrow strips of seawater that are between the ice. How can it tell the difference between the surface of the ocean and the surface of the ice? Two things, actually. 
One is that the amount of energy that's reflected off the sea is very much more than the amount of energy reflected off the ice. So if we look at the energy in the echoes, we can tell the difference. The second thing, though, and this is the thing that we use to make the measurement, is there's a very small difference in height between the ice, which is floating in the water, and the water. So by looking at that very small difference, we can deduce what the thickness of the ice is. The sound of satellites being built in a clean room at Astrium in Stevenage. And Astrium is the company who built the Cryosat satellite. And I'm joined by Ralph Cordy. Ralph, what makes Cryosat different to the satellites that you've built before? Cryosat doesn't look like the typical box-like satellite, perhaps with a, a solar array pointing out of it. It's a much sleeker little satellite. It looks a little bit like a tent, and it's designed like that as really as a consequence of the special orbit that we're putting it into. It's a very particular orbit that allows it to see close to the poles of the Earth. And this means that, unlike many satellites that we put up, which are oriented throughout their lifetimes relative to the sun so that we can pick up energy from just one direction, this one has to cope with the sun changing its direction throughout the seasons, throughout the lifetime of the mission. And for that reason, we've built the solar arrays in a kind of tent-like structure over the top of the satellite to be able to pick up the energy it needs regardless of the direction the sun is pointing. So the solar panels then are on the roof of the, the tent instead of the wings sticking out like we normally Exactly see. that, exactly that. They're on the roof of this sleek little tent. And a satellite is also very sleek because we need its orbit to be very predictable. We don't want it to have a lot of atmospheric drag. We want it to be able to be measured in its orbit to centimetric precision. And we want to do that because the measurements the satellite in turn is going to make, they have to be made to centimetric precision because we're looking to measure to that accuracy the changes in the heights of the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean and the ice covering the Antarctic ice cap. These precision measurements are essential for determining any change in ice cover over Cryosat's five-year mission, especially since melting ice affects ocean circulation and this could affect our climate. The spacecraft's radar will be switched on six days after launch and any data will be sent to scientific teams around the world, including one at University College London where Catherine Giles is a research fellow. Well, as soon as the data starts coming in from Cryosat to myself and fellow scientists at University College London will start looking at the data, seeing just what it can tell us over the Arctic ice and ocean. And the data from Cryosat 2 will provide the highest coverage from any satellite we've had from the European Space Agency. It will provide data up to 88 degrees north, so that means we'll be able to see the, almost the entire Arctic Ocean. Filling in these gaps is crucial in order to gain the most accurate information about our planet. And when the areas under observation are vast, with extreme weather conditions, this is where a satellite excels. Duncan Wingham. The alternative to trying to understand the Arctic ice and its implications for oceanography are to use ships. But it is completely obvious that you simply cannot get the coverage of the Arctic using ships in the way that one can with a satellite. So, so in this sense, it's a completely new look at the Arctic. 
Duncan Wingham, Principal Investigator for Cryosat 2, ending Sue Nelson's report. We'll be following events closely on the Planet Earth online website, where before the launch you'll find news and video on the mission. I'll be commentating on the launch for the European Space Agency, which you can watch live on the ESA website. Now, it might be cold here, but scientists have discovered that British springs are starting earlier. With more on that story and other news from Planet Earth Online, here's Tamara Jones in a rather fetching hat. Thanks, Richard. Well, compared with the 1970s, scientists have actually discovered that winters are ending 11 days earlier. These scientists, including some of those from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, are saying that the shift could spell disaster for animals that rely on plants flowering in the spring to provide food for their young. And it looks like the changes have been fastest for species like plants right at the bottom of the food chain, which the scientists are saying could be down to warmer temperatures. The trouble is that animal reproduction is timed to coincide with plentiful supplies of food, so that newly born creatures just don't starve. And the scientists don't yet know how animals further up the food chain are coping with the shift. Zebra finches now. Yes, that's right. Well, scientists at the University of St Andrews have unwittingly discovered that male zebra finches put on more weight and are more attractive to the opposite sex if they've been tagged with red leg bands. But birds tagged with green bands aren't nearly as successful. The researchers also found that the birds tagged with uh, red leg bands sing better, which they think is more attractive to females. Although researchers have known for a while that captive birds with red leg bands do seem to score more points with the opposite sex, they didn't quite know what would happen with wild birds, so they wanted to test this. And uh, it seems that the red leg bands have exactly the same effect. It's not really clear why red leg bands are the new bird bling, but some researchers are suggesting that Females find the bands more attractive because they're similar in colour to the bird's ornamental bills. Love the idea of bird bling. Or more discoveries from the deepest ocean. Well, a team of scientists have just returned from an expedition in the Southern Ocean where they've been exploring deep-sea volcanic vents with a remotely operated sub. The volcanic vents, called black smokers, are on the ocean floor about a mile and a half down and are dotted along chains of underwater volcanoes where tectonic plates meet. And although the same team went to these vents uh, about a year ago and they photographed them using a quite basic camera, this time the sub's equipped with robotic arms and with a high-definition camera. So this time they've, they've collected fluids gushing from the black smokers, which are hotter than 300 degrees C, as well as animals that live around the vents. And their next job is to identify the creatures, figure out what on earth the creatures are, how on earth they can live at those temperatures and at such depths, to get some idea of the biodiversity around these vent ecosystems. And no dinosaur story this week. Well, thank you, Tamara. You can read more on those stories on the Planet Earth online website. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Well, David Bowen is still with us here at Rothamsted. Now, David, you're a bit of a comic book fan, and you've helped to put together a science stories comic, which is a, a comic from Rothamsted. Why? Well, as you say, I've always been a comic book fan. I've been a comic book fan since I was a kid. So when I was really asked if I wanted to be part of a comic book, I jumped to the chance. I mean, you know, who wouldn't be if they're a real comic book fan? The aim was really to actually sort of try and simplify 
science stories so that we could actually sort of interact with kids in schools and other people more directly, you know, because sometimes science stories are presented in a quite a complicated way. This was a real attempt to sort of make something simple, straightforward and easy to understand. Well, it's a glossy comic book. It looks like any other comic book with the, the, the comic strip, and you're represented in the, in the comic as well. And what's the story you've got? And this, is, this was the first one you produced, and this is called slugging it out. Yeah, I have to say at this point that the, the, the comic book character of me is rather better looking than me, <laughs> um, for which I'm... Uh, well, I, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yes, it's about... A pred- Superhero David Bowen. Yeah, well, yeah, wearing my pants on the outside, yeah. Um, it's a story about a beetle and uh, a slug, um, and this beetle actually eats slugs. And so it's sort of presented as a story of a, sort of a prize fight almost between a slug and a, a, a beetle. So can you read us one of the panels? This is the, one of the fighting panels, so let, let's get a bit of a sense of this. Fight! Tero breaks a chunk out of Arian and then goes for the death grip. But Arian's too strong. He's slimed up his jaws. Tero is helpless. Arian wins! Fantastic. David, thank you again. There's a link to the Science Stories comic on the Planet Earth online website. I'm Richard Hollingham. Next time in the Planet Earth podcast, if all continues to go to plan, I'll be podcasting from the European Space Operations Centre at Darmstadt in Germany following the launch of Cryosat 2. I'll bring you some of the atmosphere and buzz of the place and be talking to some of those involved in the missions to monitor our changing planet. So join me next time for our space special.